Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Truth in Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. John, uh, another great opportunity to uh, look into the Word, and, and we're talking about your series on heaven. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating because I find it, it brings out a lot of questions in my own mind that yeah. I thought I'd never consider before, but Good. tell me where you're headed today. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about the intermediate state, so that's a technical word, and it basically speaks about what happens when a believer in Christ dies now before Christ comes again. I mean, what happens between those two great events? How do we exist? What's life actually like? It's an important question because if Christ doesn't return during our lifetime, we're gonna face this. Yeah. What's that gonna be like? And I, I think that's what I'm saying is, I wonder how many people out there in the, in the, in the, in the church have even asked themselves about the intermediate stage. I mean, do you think it's a question we ask ourselves often? Well, I think we don't, and one of the reasons we're so terrified about death is because we have no idea what happens then. Okay. And so it's just this, this wall of, oh no, uh, outside of this assurance of the promises of Christ. Amen. Well, I'm intrigued and I'm excited. So join us in just a few moments as Dr. John Newfeld brings us further into the ideas of heaven right here on Truth and Life Today. During Paul's second missionary journey, and it's recorded in, in Acts chapter 17, and, and Luke records it, um, Paul has come to the city of Athens. Now at the time of Paul, in the first century, Athens was by no means the largest, and some might even say not even the most important city in Greece. That honor went to Corinth. But Athens' place in Greek history is unmistakable. I mean, Athens was the birthplace of democracy. And Athens was also the birthplace of the Greek philosophers who influenced all of Greece with their thinking. And Paul arrives in Athens. It wasn't that large of a city at the time of Paul. And Luke says that his spirit is provoked within him because he looks around and he sees all the idols in the city. The city is full of idols. In fact, uh, historians tell us that at the time of Paul, there would have been more idols than there would have been people in the city of Athens. So you can imagine how Paul must have felt. So Paul finds himself in the marketplace, what we would call, or what they would call the Agora in that day. And it would have been quite a popular feature, well accepted within that culture, for anyone who brings a new philosophical system or a new religion into the city, that the Agora or the marketplace would have had places where you kind of stand on a soapbox and you begin to preach or reason with people. People are shouting back at you, and, and that's just how it happened in Athens. Well, Paul has really created a stir with what he's saying. So some of the, the philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics, they take him and they bring him to a place called the Areopagus. It would have been an elevated uh, platform. Uh, it would have been a place where the elders of the city would have met. It would have also historically been a place where the most famous trials in the history of Greece would have been held. Paul's brought there to give an account for what he's teaching. And now they're interested in that. And he tells them something about himself. He, he says to them that there's a day of judgment coming wherein God will judge the world by the man whom he has appointed. And that's interesting to them. They want to know more. And, and let me read to you uh, what it actually says in Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 31. He has fixed a day. That is, God the Father has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all, it says, by raising him from the dead. 
Now, up to the point that he has said, raising him to the dead, everything before that, they're interested, even though some are arguing with him, they're listening. But the minute he says, by raising him from the dead, that was the end of the conversation. People begin to mock and they shut him down. It's as far as they're going to go. Now, if you're reading the book of Acts and you come to Acts 17 and you read this stuff and you're reading it in the contemporary environment, you'd say, oh, I know what's going on. Obviously, the Greeks didn't believe in life after death, but that's not true. The Greeks all believed in life after death. In fact, there's a very famous incident in Greece and it surrounds the death of Socrates. Socrates was put to death in the year 399 BC, so over 400 years before Paul arrived. And that famous trial in which he was charged with sedition of the youth of Athens. And uh, he was uh, put to death before, uh, before um, uh, the watching of his student Plato. And as Socrates uh, drinks the hemlock, which is the poison which is a sign for him to drink, he very cheerily drinks down and drains the entire cup because he knows that the best life is yet ahead of him. He believes in life after death. All the Greeks did. So here's the question. Why when Paul mentions the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, do the Greeks start to mock? And the answer has everything to do with the bodily resurrection of the dead. See, here's what the Greeks thought about the body. The Greeks taught, and Plato did so, that the body was a prison house of the soul. The, group, the Greeks were dualists. That is, they made a distinction between the body and the soul. And so the idea that there would be a bodily existence after death was ludicrous to them. Uh, Plato said there's a visible world and there's an invisible spiritual world. The invisible spiritual world is better than the visible world. Great many Greeks taught that the physical world had been created by younger gods. And that the younger gods, you know, they weren't perfect in what they had done, but it's the realm of pure spirit that people were waiting to go to. In fact, uh, Plato went so far as to say that unless you rid yourself of attachment to this world, you won't be able to get into pure spiritual reality when you die. Plato thought one of the reasons why, uh, you know, there was moaning going on in graveyards is because all sorts of people who had established rivets between their body and their soul were not able to jump easily into the spiritual realm. Well, all that to say, for the Greeks, the body is inferior. You never think about the life to come physically. That just can't exist as far as, they're, as far as they think. Body, flesh, and the physical realm, that's the lower order. You escape from that when you die. Now, that's Greek way of thinking, and here's what I'm gonna say. A great many Christians unknowingly have adopted a Greek dualism when they think about life after death. They think that the life to come is spiritual and we lay aside our body now. So, as an example, I've been to more than one funeral where the pastor has said of the person who is deceased, you know, you're standing at the graveside. There's a casket out there. And the pastor said, you know, these are just the working clothes as if, you know, this is just the, the, the clothes they inhabited while they were on earth, but now, you know, the real them has gone to heaven. The Greeks would have said amen, but the Bible says something different. Well, listen to John 1:14. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. 
the glory of the word becoming flesh. I mean, the greatest thing that ever happened, says John, is when the eternal word of God was enfleshed and became human, and that is fully physical. Well, I have so much more to say about that. We've been talking about the difference between Greek dualism and the biblical view of what it means to be fully human. Let me read to you from 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and in this, John writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this we proclaim to you. In other words, John is saying the greatest thing that ever happened is what happened in real flesh and blood reality. In fact, the, the tense that's used here is one that we really don't have in the English language, but we could read it this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, and yet that image is still burned onto my retina, says John. Uh, that which I've looked upon and touched with my hands and my fingers are still tingling with what I've touched, that is, Physical reality is the most spiritual thing that I have ever encountered, says John. That's what he's writing. And that's why later on in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, he writes, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. See, in Greek ways of thinking, when the flesh is inferior, you would never say that, you know, that the word has become flesh. John does. And in fact, he says this is the centerpiece of our faith. To deny this part is to deny the entire Christian faith. Well, let me go beyond that. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. That is, the, the physical universe tells of the greatness of God. It's not a lesser form of reality. Do you see that? It, in fact, embodies the greatness of God. Isaiah 43 verse 7 speaks about the creation of human beings and that we are for God's glory. Look, it's true that God is spirit and that he himself is non-corporal, but he has created a physical world. And after he created it, he said, it is very good. That is, the physical world perfectly embodies the glory of God. Um, and listen to Psalm 29, verse 3, in which it says that the physical thunder is actually the voice of God speaking through the created order. Romans 1 tells us that uh, God created all things and that it is, you know, it, we, we should know that it is the glory of God by looking at the, the creation itself. And then when it comes to the creation of human beings, Genesis 2 verse 7 says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, what does it mean to be human? It means that we are both physical and spiritual at the same time. And God didn't have souls out here and bodies out here and at some point in time just brings them together. Rather, we are physical in nature. We're from the dust of the ground. We share fully in earthly substance. And yet in this earthly substance is breathed um, 
a breath, the Hebrew word is nefesh. It is the spirit, it is the, the, the life of God is breathed into us. So we are this spiritual being who is enfleshed. And that's why Michael Horton in his excellent systematic theology puts it, I think, very well. He says, man is bodily and therefore the scriptural way of expressing this truth is not that man has a body, but that man is body. Scripture does not represent the soul or spirit of man as created first and put into a body. The body is not an appendage, says Horton, and indeed, that's exactly what the Bible expresses. That's the Hebrew way of thinking. That's why when we come to the question of what happens to us when we die, when, when the body actually ceases to exist, when, when the soul is torn from the body, that's what death is, can we actually exist in that fashion? Because according to biblical ways of thinking, we are one being, body and flesh and, uh, and soul is all incorporated into one. Well, on the basis of that, let me take you to a text that comes from Luke 23, verse 43. Luke 23, verse 43, Jesus is hanging on a cross. There is a thief on one side and a thief on the other. One of the thieves are, you know, one of the thieves is cursing him, but the other says, remember me as you enter into your glory. And Jesus says to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, we need to ask ourselves, what was he promising him? What is the life to come? Now, I'm going to combine that with something else, and that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 to 4. Listen to these words. Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. It's interesting because of everything that we've said. God knows, he says, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Hey, that's the very word that Jesus had talked about. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, that's a fascinating thing, and there's a lot of things here, but let me start with the most obvious. Paul says a person was caught up in the third heaven, which he says is paradise. Now, in Paul's way of thinking, you could think about the celestial thing above his head in three ways. One, uh, the Greeks tended to think about the first heaven, which was immediately above your head. And then there is the second heaven, which would have been the orbs, that is the planets that exist out there. But the third heaven is beyond that. It's the dwelling place of God. It's paradise itself. Now, the real question for us, because Paul says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. The real question for us is, is it possible to exist in the dwelling place of God and to be devoid of our body? That's the question that every single Christian ought to ask as we're facing our own death. Is it possible for us to survive the death of our body given that the Bible speaks about our life and our being in both spiritual and physical terms at the same time. Can we exist spiritually when we don't exist physically? I'll talk about that.
In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about uh, having this vision in which um, he says, I'm taken up into the dwelling place of God, which is paradise. And he says, I don't know whether I was in the body or out of the body. And that's got a great many Bible teachers concerned. I mean, what exactly does that mean? So let me take you to a couple of texts that help us to at least begin to plumb what that might be all about. First of all, the words of Jesus in Revelation 2, verse 7 is a message to the church in Ephesus, and here's what Jesus says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So there it is, you know, you're going to eat from a tree of life. That sounds very physical. I mean, the idea of taking from a tree, a, you know, whatever that fruit is, and eating of that fruit sounds, you know, that sounds like something I might do in this life when I exist in a bodily form, but that's exactly how Jesus promises the life to come. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, we know that that there is a tree of life which is at the center of the garden. Adam and Eve never ate from that tree. They were banished from the garden. And uh, the, the God himself says at that moment that the angels were to keep them from eating from the tree of life lest they live forever. But it turns out that the tree of life is there in heaven. So we do eat from it there and we do live forever. What in the world can that mean? Well, I'm going to take us to a number of passages in Scripture that might help to unpack that. And I'm going to start with something from Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. It's a story that Jesus told. And listen carefully. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now watch what it says. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, lifted up his eyes. Oh, does he have eyes? Apparently so. And he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger. Oh, so apparently Lazarus has a finger and there's water and it would cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Well, that sounds like very physical language. All the marks of physical existence are here in this story of what happens instantly at death. The, the, the unrighteous rich man is in torment and he awaits the final judgment. Lazarus is taken up into paradise where he is at Abraham's side, but what interests me at this moment is the physicality of that experience. And by the way, doesn't that sound so much like Paul? He says, when I was taken up into paradise, he says, I I wasn't aware whether or not I was in the body or out of the body. It must mean that Paul had a physical existence there, and yet how could his body have traveled there? I think that's the question that he was asking. So when we come to speaking about the life to come, it's always expressed in physical terminology. I mean, one of those events is recorded in 1 Samuel 28 in the Old Testament, and it's the incident in which Saul, who is at the point of death, calls a medium. He's not supposed to do that. He calls a medium, and the medium comes, and he says to the medium, call up Samuel. Now, the medium's a fraud. 
And as she conjures her bag of tricks, suddenly Samuel rises. The medium is shocked by that and says, hey, something that's out of my control is going on. And she looks at Saul and says, you must be the king of Israel. Clearly God has just intervened. But what Samuel, I'm sorry, what Saul sees, he sees Samuel physically and he is living in the life to come. Matthew 17, Peter, James, and John accompany Jesus onto a high mountain. And there they see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, why am I speaking this way? Because in biblical terminology, when we die, we immediately go and be with Christ. But those who have passed away and are with Christ, and those who are alive are still waiting for the coming of Jesus, that when Christ returns, we receive our new body and are with him forever. And so this this state of of dying and being with Christ and awaiting the new body has often been called the intermediate state. The question is often asked, what's it like? And yet we have all of these examples. We have this example of Lazarus dying and somehow he exists physically. He has a finger, he can dip it into water. There's water that's there. There's a physical reality that he's experiencing. The same is true when Samuel rises in front of Saul. The same is true when Moses and Elijah are seen by the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. They see them physically. And in fact, Peter even says, let's build a tent so that they can spend the night with us. That's because they came in physical form. So however life is to be conceived in this intermediate state, it seems to be physical. And yet... I'm going to read a text that might lead us in the opposite direction, but it's Revelation 6, 9 to 11. It says, He opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. And a lot of people say, well, I mean, there are only the souls there in heaven until the receiving of the new body. But notice also when it says that the souls of those, and then later on in the text it says they were given white robes to wear. I, I don't know because the Bible isn't, overtly clear, but enough evidence is there that says, in some fashion, God gives those who have passed away a physical existence while we await the consummation of all things. Here's what I want to say. I can't imagine an existence in which we exist apart from the body. Now, I know that our body is laid into the tomb when we die. But I also know that God is preparing for us a body which will come out of the remains of whatever is left from this body. But in the intermediate, it seems that life is physical nonetheless. Every indication tells us it's so, which says to me that when you and I are transported in the presence of God, it will be a physical experience through and through. It's not going to be Greek. It's going to be biblical. Welcome back to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John. John, you uh, opened my mind to a few different thoughts. Again, I, I, I question whether I question this stuff enough because yeah. this is stuff that's not a, going to affect only our todays, but our eternities. Why don't yeah. we think about it more? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm surprised by it as well. I, I love to say this, Ben. I went to seminary and I didn't get a class on heaven and the life to come. And yet, as a pastor, I would stand at the dying bedside of many a saint who would ask these very questions, which I was unequipped to handle. Mm -hmm. It's so important to be equipped. 
Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think not only the church, but, uh, you know, uh, we both went through seminary, and I'm trying to think back. I never had a class on heaven, did yeah. you? You see, that's the question. And, and I know that not only did I not get a class on heaven, the idea that um, how should I actually exist in the life to come? Is there pure spiritual existence? Was I even created to be pure spiritual existence? I would argue not. Yeah. That's not the biblical mindset, and, and that's surprising to a lot of people. Now, you know, just in case we get, uh, I think sometimes it can become confusing for people. I don't think there's any question at all. But we were talking about the fact uh, that the intermediate stage, we talked about the soul rising. But now we're saying that the soul isn't really separated from the body, but it's not necessarily the body that we're putting in the grave. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think when Paul says, I was in the, in the third heaven, yeah. whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. It doesn't talk about pure spiritual existence. He's saying, it felt so physical. Okay. You know, it so felt so physical. I, I'm confused now about the state that I existed in, in that third heaven, because he felt it physically. So whether or not we understand it completely, we do understand that he felt something physically. Correct. So there was something physical and the soul was involved. Yeah. Our soul and physical existence belong together for all eternity. Wow. What's happening next week? Well, we're gonna keep, we're gonna talk about the judgment that is to come. What will happen at the end of the age when Christ returns and we stand before the judgment seat? Well, thanks so much, John. And thanks for joining us today. Remember to join us again next week right here on Truth and Life Today. Thank you.